following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So if you guys would turn with me, our passage for today is from John chapter 8. We're looking at verses 1 through 11. And as you guys are turning there, um, I just want to share a story about um, when I was younger, I, I used to love playing sports video games. And um, usually when I'm preaching for youth group students also, they don't really know anything that I talk about from my childhood. But I'm hoping that there's some people that can relate with me today. Um, some of my favorites were like Ken Griffey Jr.'s Winning Run. Anybody ever play that? Super Nintendo? Or um, NHL 96, Madden 96. I'm afraid that maybe I've missed the age range. Maybe some of you guys are a little bit older than I am. So I'm still, like, missing, missing some of you. Um, but you know what I really loved about these games that I played when I was a kid was that I was just really, really good at them, right? Um, I always won. And it's, it wasn't because I was so talented or, like, awesome at video games, but because most of the time I was scared or I, I just chose not to play with other people. I grew up with an older brother who's only two years older than I am. Um, but for some reason, most of the time when I was playing these video games, it was just by myself, me against the computer, right? And, um, and all these old sports games had, like, really weak artificial intelligence, like AI code, right? So there's always some way that you can exploit them so easily, and you can just run up the score. So like a typical game for me when I was playing these football video games was like, I would score like 60, 70, like 80 points in a game, and they're like three-minute quarters, and then the computer would only score like 10, maybe 20 if I was, if I was being lazy, right? And I, I just, every time I played, I wasn't playing hoping that I would win. I knew that I was going to win. I was just wondering how much I would win by, right? Well, a couple of years ago, when Kanye and I got married, we bought a, a PlayStation 4, and I haven't played that many um, sports games since then. We bought this PS4, and I bought an NBA game, and I bought a football game, okay? And I think I played NBA 2K15 for, like, maybe, like, two, three weeks or so before I gave up on it. And I, I, I picked up the controller to play Madden with Kanye. <laughs> she asked me to play once. We played, like, maybe a game and a half, and then we kind of gave up on it, too. And I realized that the reason why I, I stopped playing these games is because I was just not good anymore. <laughs> like, the controls are all different. Everything has changed about the game. And, and the AI in these games is so ridiculous that I just couldn't beat them. Or I would play on, like, the easiest mode, and I'd beat them once or twice, and I'd move on to the next mode, and there's, like, five difficulties. And on the second level of difficulty, it was, like, 50-50 whether or not I was going to win. I was like, forget this. Why am I stressing myself out over this video game? I don't need to play this, Right? And in, essentially, the reason why I stopped playing was, was not because I had grown up and grown out of these video games, but because I just didn't want to put myself at risk of losing, right? I have this crazy risk aversion, this fear of failure that I've realized in the past couple of years. And um, I'm not sure how many of you guys can relate, um, but I feel like whenever I'm, I'm faced with this situation where I have to choose to take this risk or run from it, most of the time I run. If you really think about it, risk aversion is not really a bad or a terrible thing, right? A fear of things is, is one of the ways that we stay safe. It's, it's good for evolution, right? The fact that we're afraid of wild bears and lions is good for our survival. It makes us run away instead of trying to fight them. Our fear of heights is also generally a pretty good thing because when you fall from up there, then you could die. It keeps us safe. But the problem with risk aversion is that there's very little that can be done or accomplished in our lives that's really worthwhile without taking some sort of a risk. 
In fact, lots of times the most rewarding adventures that we go on in our lives requires the most grave risks, the most serious risks. Accepting a new job, immigrating to a new country, taking a stand for a belief of yours, or asking a girl out, or asking your girlfriend to marry you, having kids. The list goes on, and these are all risky behaviors that end up with some kind of a great reward. So in a way, our extreme avoidance of risk, or my extreme avoidance of risk, can also mean that I run from the opportunities in life for the greatest greatness. And um, most people, I think, would not say that they're opposed or averse to greatness, but many of us are averse to risk. Today in the passage that we're looking at, in John chapter 8, um, it's a pretty clear portrayal of grace, right? And we're going to be talking about the adulterous woman, um, but rather talk, than talking about what God's grace is or how amazing it is, although those are worthwhile subjects, um, I want to talk about this idea of grace aversion. I think all of us, whether we realize it or not, or whether we're willing to admit it or not, have some degree of grace aversion. But like greatness aversion, it's not usually intentional. It's kind of a, a, a byproduct of something else, right? So um, if you guys would turn with me to John chapter 8, let me read this for us. It says, Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses... In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. We need to fight our grace aversion by recognizing that grace is not just something that God does, but it's essential to, to who he is. The Pharisees in this passage came to Jesus with this woman who was caught in adultery, it says, right? And it literally means that she probably was in the act of committing adultery that day, and she had been dragged out of um, this moment and, and brought before Jesus. And the Pharisees' grace aversion is, is shown clearly in the context of what this passage is talking about, okay? So several chapters before this, um, the Pharisees were actually angry uh, with Jesus and trying to find a basis for accusing him because in John chapter 5, Jesus heals this invalid on the Sabbath. There's this man who had been um, sick for 38 years, the Bible says. And after this healing, rather than praising God for his grace, the Pharisees did two things. First, they got angry at the man for carrying his mat that Jesus told him to pick up and walk with. The second was that they got angry when they found out that Jesus was the man who healed him because he healed on the Sabbath, which was unlawful in their eyes. They were actually angry about God's grace to the people that they considered to be sinners. They hated Jesus' grace because it made life feel unfair to them. 
And a lot of times I know that in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, when we're reading this, it seems like the Pharisees are these bad guys that, that just uh, keep on getting in Jesus' way, right? And it's easy for us to, to judge them or to, to point the finger and say, like, man, those guys are so messed up. But in a lot of ways, I feel like they're a lot like us. They were hardworking, highly motivated people who believed that the way to success in life was to be a good person. And the way to do that was to follow the law. And so imagine that like them, you spent your entire life making sure that you memorized the law of God and that you didn't break it at any point. And you spent days, months, maybe even years discussing and debating with your fellow Pharisees about how to uphold this law, what you could and couldn't do. And you made sure that you followed every last bit of it. You were marked as a goody two-shoes and as a tattletale as a kid, and so all the kids didn't want to play with you. But you were upholding this cause, this righteous cause, and so you were okay with that. And then as an adult, people respected you, but it was more out of fear than out of love because they knew that you were the one that would judge them if they did something wrong. You devoted your whole life to not stepping to the right or to the left, and you've given up all sorts of parties and activities. You've given up friends. You've given up your time and energy to do what you really truly believe that God wanted you to do. You gave it all up so that you could be a good Pharisee and upholder of the law. And then all of a sudden, one day, this guy, Jesus, walks in. And he starts breaking these laws. But he does it in a way that makes, instead of other people judging him, instead of doing it so brashly that even you could judge him and you can bring him in front of other people and say, look at this sinner, he becomes popular by it. He starts drawing crowds and people are praising him because he's working these miracles of God. And in your eyes, he's getting praised for breaking the law. He's getting praised for breaking the law on the behalf of other people who are these incredible sinners. They're probably only sick because they sin some, in some awesome way anyway. Now, the Pharisees clearly had their own sins too, especially a lack of love for people. But nobody can blame them for lack of effort to uphold the law of God. But in their minds, they had marked off what was acceptable and unacceptable for themselves. And they judged everyone according to their own standard. If they had been offered God's grace, they surely would have rejected it because they felt like they didn't need it. Or at the very least, even if they needed some of it, they needed it much less than everybody else did. So when Jesus comes and he offers grace to these sinners who haven't upheld the law of God, then they're up in an uproar over how unfair it all is. And to be honest with you, they're right. God's grace is unfair. By definition, it's undeserved, unmerited, unwarranted. It's scandalous. It's a perversion of our sense of justice. And everyone here has been wronged in some kind of a way where you've fought for something that you believed was right and somebody else cheated the system and somehow it feels like they won and you lost. So many of us, like the Pharisees, have some self-righteousness in us. We draw our own lines in the sand. We say, okay, these sins are okay and these sins are not. And we may be okay with sins like judging other people, complaining or being discontented, greed and materialism, self-indulgence, pride, an unwillingness to forgive people that we think genuinely did something really wrong that's not worth forgiving. A disregard for your marriage or for your children. We're okay with some of these. But then there are other sins that we put in this category as unforgivable. 
too heinous for these people to deserve God's grace. In conservative Christian circles, unfortunately, some of these unforgivable, damnable sins might be things like homosexuality or murder, abortion, living a transgendered or transsexual lifestyle. Maybe more recently, something might target our, that might target our heartstrings is stuff like racism and bigotry, terrorism, human trafficking. We've made these lists of these are acceptable sins versus unacceptable sins just the same way that the Pharisees had. The crazy thing is that when we talk about how these people that commit these heinous sins don't deserve grace, when you really think about that, that's exactly the point of God's grace, isn't it? That's undeserved. When I think about what happened yesterday in Virginia, with this white supremacist rally where somebody drove a car into a crowd and, and a woman died and there were about 20 others that were injured. We can very easily point the finger at all those people that were at that rally and say, look at these ridiculous sinners who are shaming the name of Christ. I hope that God judges them somehow or that some disaster fall, falls on them. Many of us see them as the scum of the earth who deserve to be kicked out of our country or even to die. Or we're at least rooting that even if they don't die right now because we disagree with the death penalty, that at least in eternity that God will judge them and bring eternal damnation to them. You see, even though we can point the finger at these Pharisees and saying that they're averse to grace, but we're not, if we're really honest with ourselves, there's some level in our own hearts where we're actually averse to grace where we fight against the grace of God because we think that some people are not worthy of it. And we even come to feel like it would be unfair. We would feel like we're cheated to some degree if those people somehow were saved and redeemed. Because we, while we're trying to live this good life and, and, and holding back our sinful desires and, and trying to live the way that God has called us to live for all these years— Let's imagine that one of those people that was at that rally, maybe even that car driver, on the last day of his life, maybe he lives a long life until he's 80, 90, 100 years old, and the very last day of his life, somehow the gospel reaches him. How many of us would actually be able to give praise to God for saving a sinner like him? Isn't that exactly the heart of the older son and the story of the prodigal son? We start to see some sins as utterly unforgivable. We make it our personal mission to convict those people of those sins and even to punish them of those sins. And that's one of the ways that we're averse to grace, guys. And in those moments of our grace aversion, I think Jesus might respond to us the same way that he did to the crowd that was there that day. He might say to them, look, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. And Jesus responds to two things to us who hear it, right? The first thing is that he calls us to look at ourselves first. Stop pointing that, that, that at the other person's sin. Stop focusing so much on their plank. But instead, look at yourself. Look at your own heart. Stop believing the lie that you're somehow less affected by this cancer of sin or that your sin is somehow less punishable than theirs is. In fact, in this story, the woman is condemned as an adulteress, and it is punishable by death. If you look at the Old Testament law, it's very clear. There's no question in this whole text about whether or not she was guilty or how this, this guilt should be punished. Everyone agreed 
But there are lots of other sins in the Old Testament that were also punishable by death. Murder in Exodus chapter 20. Worshiping other gods in Deuteronomy 13. Witchcraft in Exodus 22. Taking the Lord's name in vain or cursing God in Leviticus 24. These last two really, really hit home for me because I think every one of us can relate here. But cursing a parent in Leviticus 20. Even disobeying your parents in Deuteronomy 21. All those sins were not just sins that were listed in the law. They're not just like small sins, but they were listed as sins that are punishable by death. And of course, in Romans 6.23, Paul reminds us that the wages of sin, whether big or small, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Jesus, when he says them, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her, we have to respond to that by looking at ourselves. Am I without sin or am I with sin? And of course, for all of us, we all have sin. And we all deserve death the same way that this woman did. The same way that any sinner in our, in, in our world today does. The second thing that his response does is that as we look at our own sin, we're reminded of where we stand in the courtroom. A lot of times we treat other people's sins as if they're sinning against us. We're the plaintiff who has been wronged, who is bringing this person to trial. But remember, when we're dealing with sin, we're not the primary victims. We actually stand amongst those who are accused. Grace is unfair. It is unjust, but not to you or to me. The sin wasn't committed against us anyway, and if the one against whom this woman committed her sin decides to give her mercy, then who are we to say otherwise? If God in his grace decides to give this driver of this car mercy and to extend grace to him because of the sins that he committed against God, then who are we to stand in the way Say, God, no, 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 that's not fair. In fact, when we have a right view of our sin and of God's grace, then as a fellow debtor to God who stands alongside of these other sinners, we should always rejoice at the grace of God, no matter who they are or what they've done, because it shows the gracious character of the God against whom we've sinned. Now, sometimes it's not just a matter of whether or not we recognize our own sins. It's not a matter of whether or not um, we are, are appreciative of the fact that God is gracious. But I found that one of the things for me that is the hardest to accept about grace is that oftentimes, even after I recognize my own sinfulness and I admit my need for grace, I still find it really, really difficult for me to really embrace grace for what it is. Here's what I mean. When I read this verdict from Jesus at the end of the passage, he says, um, he says, neither do I condemn you. And I find that first half of this really, really comforting, right? Neither do I condemn you. I love hearing that from Jesus. But the second half of it sounds really, really burdensome. He says, go, and from now on, sin no more. And in my heart, I say, well, praise God that he's not condemning me, but... When he's asking me to not sin anymore, does that mean now that all of a sudden I have to be perfect? That I need to live this life where I'm not going to mess up anymore? That I'm never ever going to be brought before him with my sin again? And I think that reflects another version of my grace aversion. Another way that my heart fights against grace. Here's what I mean. Um, how many of you guys find it, are like me and you find it really 
uh, difficult for you to accept gifts or compliments from people. Um, well, when I was younger, um, Christmas was a really stressful time for me, okay? Because I would spend weeks making lists of people that I needed to buy gifts for. And, of course, I had no job, so I had very little money. And then I would look at how much money I had to spend on Christmas gifts. And then I would look at this list and, and mark next to them how much money I was going to give to them. And, of course, the most important people have to get the most money, right? And, um, and so then after that, then I would try to put next to their names also ideas that I would come up, for, come up with uh, for gifts for them. And choosing gifts was, of course, stressful. But, honestly, the most stressful part about Christmas for me and this whole gift-giving process was... On Christmas Eve, when I would go to church with my bag full of gifts to give to my friends, because I would always think about whether or not I had left somebody out, right? I think the worst thing that can happen on Christmas is that somebody comes to you and you're handing out these gifts to your friends, and somebody comes to you and gives you a gift, and you don't have a gift for them in return. Isn't that right? Isn't that the worst thing that can happen to you on Christmas? It's not even when I give a gift to somebody and they don't give me something back. That's okay. I can deal with that, right? But when somebody gives me a gift and I don't have something to give back— and it's like, oh my gosh, I feel so terrible. There was this episode in uh, The Big Bang Theory, the show that I used to watch, that's called The Bath Item Gift Hypothesis. Okay? And um, it was a Christmas special about the, the tradition of gift giving on the holidays and expresses this, this um, terrible situation perfectly. Okay? So Sheldon is one of the main characters in this, and Penny is this female character. And Penny gets a gift for Sheldon, gives it, or, and Sheldon sees that she bought a gift. And so the exchange that happens between them starts with Sheldon. He says, wait, you bought me a present? Uh-huh. Why would you do such a thing? I don't know, because it's Christmas. Oh, Penny, I know you think you're being generous, but the foundation of gift-giving is reciprocity. You haven't given me a gift. You've given me an obligation. <laughs> and Penny says, no, hey, it's okay. You don't have to give me anything in return. And Sheldon says, of course I do. The essence of the custom is that I now have to go out and purchase for you a gift that is commensurate in value and represented the same perceived level of friendship as that represented by the gift that you've given me. And it's easy to laugh at Sheldon and how silly this whole idea is, but I think a lot of times when we think about God's grace, we perceive it the same way. We think that Jesus is saying here, look, neither do I condemn you. So in order to repay me as a response that is, I'm trying to elicit out of you as a response to my grace, go and be perfect. Serve the church more. Give more in your offerings. Spend more of your time reading the Bible on your knees in prayer. And that's how you're going to repay me for my grace to you. We imagine that God is saying to us, I let you off this time, so I better not see you in my courts again. Don't break that law anymore. You owe me. That's what my grace averse ears hear. It's weird how there's this incredible debt that's associated with accepting God's gracious forgiveness for my sins. I see it in the language that I use to describe my motivation for living a more Christ-centered life. I would say things like, well, Christ died for my sins to pay the penalty for me, so now I owe my life to him. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus erased our debt. He didn't just transfer it from a sin ledger to a, to a grace ledger. 
He didn't say, look, these are all the lists of sins that you've committed and now I've erased them and so now you owe me however much this cost. And so live your life in a way to repay me. That's not grace anymore. Grace means that our sins have been unearned and uh, our, our sins have been paid for with a gift that is unearned and undeserved before and after the fact, right? He gave it to us freely and he expects us to receive it freely. So that's why in, in, in the book of Galatians, Paul admonishes them saying, you foolish Galatians, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Stop trying to earn your grace. Christ's command to her to go and to sin no more is not expected as a repayment. She couldn't repay him even after she, if she tried, and he doesn't want her to try. But he was saying it to her. His, her. his call to her was not, okay, now you're indebted to me, so pay me back. But look, I've won this grace for you. I've earned, I've, I've paid for this grace for you. And so now go live in it. Go enjoy the gift of freedom that I've bought on your behalf. God's grace shouldn't be a burden on our shoulders, but it lifts all the burden off of our shoulders. He wasn't trying to do it for recognition. He wasn't trying to manipulate her into doing something for him. But it was simply just God being who God is. It's in his character to love this way, to be gracious this way. And so yes, in some ways on the outside, it may seem like this is a, a nitpicky difference, but it makes all the difference in the world because when we think of, of living this life for God and we think about the second half of God's, Jesus' command to her where he says, go and from now on sin no more, if we think of that as, as, a, as an obligation that we have to give to Jesus because of his gift, that's going to be a radically different life from us saying, okay, now I have not condemned you, and therefore I know the character of Christ. I know who Christ is. I know who I am in his eyes. I know my worth in his eyes. I know who I am to him. And therefore, this God is a God worth living for. We can sense our level of grace aversion by whether or not we see that command as a burden whether we see that as a command, as a burden, or as freedom. Grace aversion is, is a direct result of our cross aversion. We don't like to have to deal with sin the only way that it can be dealt with. We don't like the idea that I can't make amends for this somehow. We have this guilt that says, I have to pay it back. We don't want to say, okay, the cross was enough. That's all that I need. We don't want to lay it all down before God. We also don't want to have to put up with other people's sins. We don't want to believe that the cross was not only enough for me, but is enough for all those out there too. We don't like the messiness of this system of grace. But the fact of the matter is that we are all products of that same system. God includes sinners like you and me in his plans and in his works, and it's messy. But that's the beauty of the gospel. And that's the beauty of the God that we serve, is that he extends his grace to me, to you, to all the, the ridiculous sinners that are out there in the world, right alongside of us.
So my big and unsafe prayer for us this week is that God would help us to overcome our aversion to grace. This world needs more people that will be grace agents, people who will give others a taste of the goodness of God's grace, people who will love and embrace God's grace in all of its form to all of its recipients on his behalf, and we'll share that forth with this world. Let's pray. Dear God, we want to thank you so much for your grace. We want to take this moment right now when we've been faced with your word to thank you for your grace because if we're really honest, um, a lot of times we, uh, we aren't that thankful for it. In fact, a lot of times we can be enemies of the cross. We can be enemies of your grace in this world. Our sin has tainted us so deeply that even though we um, have even tasted and seen and, 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 and been redeemed by your grace, sometimes we don't want to extend that to others. We don't want to even see you extending that to others. And so, Lord, would you change our hearts? Would you heal us all over again today? God, would you help us to not make it our job to bring judgment into this world? Just as when you came and you were here in the flesh with your disciples, you said that your, your role here was not to condemn, but to take a world that has already be, been condemned by their own sin and to bring your redemption to bring reconciliation. So Lord, would you make us agents of that kind of reconciliation? God, would you help us not only um, to theoretically or theologically believe in your grace, but God, on a practical level, in in the real world, in our daily lives, in our workplaces, in our families, in our homes, Lord, would you help us to go forward as agents of grace, people who would um, who would live the way that you have set the example for us to live. God, we thank you. We love you so much for being so patient with us. Um, We pray that you would help um, us to be a community that is transformed um, by the power of your love and of your grace to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.